just by way of reminder, um, remember Jesus gave us in chapter one, he gave us an outline for the entire book of Revelation. You guys remember what verse, what, what verse it was? Verse 19, Jesus gives us the outline for the book. And he said to John, when John was on the Isle of Patmos, he said, write the things, number one, which you have seen, and number two, the things which are, and number three, the things which will take place after this. And so this outline helps us understand, give us an understanding of the entire book of Revelation. So Jesus, he says, number one, write down what? The things which you have, the things which you have seen. What did John see? Remember in chapter one, John was on the Isle of Patmos and he saw Jesus, right? Glorified, beautiful, majestic, awesome. And what was his response when he saw him? He fell at the feet of Jesus as if dead, in awe of the Lord. And I think as we consider this this morning, we should always be in awe of Jesus. It should never be like we become so familiar where we lose that reverence, that fear, that respect, that honor of him. And so he says to John, write down, number one, the things which you have seen. That's chapter one. And then number two, he says, write down the things which are. And that would be chapter two through chapter three. Jesus is giving seven report cards to seven literal churches that existed in, Jesus, in John's day, John the Apostle. And so, however, these letters are applicable throughout the church age, applicable for us this morning, not only corporately, but also individually in our lives as well. So chapter 2 and chapter 3 make up the second part of the outline. And then the third part of the outline, Jesus said, write down the things which will what? Which will take place after this. That'll be chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22. And so we'll get into that a little bit later on. And so we have found ourselves in chapter 2. I think we left off in verse 12, correct? The third church. And by the way, I think it's important um, just to consider this morning, I, I try to do it once a year for our church, is to filter how we are doing through this grid of the seven churches. How are we pleasing the Lord? We find out what pleases Jesus, what displeases him, what, what makes him happy concerning the church, what the church should be about. And, and so not only filtering it through our church through this grid, because really that's all that matters is what Jesus thinks, Correct. The world will tell you what, what there's worldly views of a, of a successful church, but we want a successful, successful church in Jesus' eyes. And so we filter through the grid in our own lives as well. And so we've come to the third church, verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, These things says he who has the sharp two edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, 
to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So let me draw your attention back to verse 12 for a moment. And remember, with each of these churches, they are addressed to the angel of the church. And angel, you guys remember, that word uh, literally means messenger. And it can refer to a messenger, an actual angel from heaven, or it can, be, it can refer to a human instrument, someone that delivers God's message, is faithful to share the message given to them from God. I personally believe it speaks of the pastor of the church, of the church of Pergamos, the church of Smyrna, church of Ephesus, the person that is responsible to be faithful to deliver God's message to the congregation. Are you with me this morning? So that's how I view it. I don't because I don't see any angels really in Scripture um, doing this with churches, and so I believe it's the pastor. The church is located where, by the way? Where's this church at? Pergamos. It's modern. It's in modern day Turkey, and the city is called Bergama. And it is north of Smyrna, north of Ephesus. If you have a Bible map, it's 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. And if you look at like pictures of this place, like the ruins, it's on like a, a plateau about a thousand feet uh, above sea level. And it, it is like they did like reconstructive uh, pictures of what it would have looked like. It's amazing. It is an amazing city, full of culture. There was business. There was a medical school there. Um, there was also all kinds of shrines and pagan temples to every sort of god and goddess. The, the city was saturated with sexual immorality and idolatry, totally given over. Um, and in the midst of all this darkness, what's there? A church. In the midst of all of the wickedness and evil and perversion going on, here is this lampstand, this church shining for Jesus right there in the midst of it. So beautiful. And so Jesus says, write this down. Here's what I want written and communicated to my church. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And remember with each of these letters, each of these report cards, Jesus takes something from chapter one. Remember when Jesus was revealed to John, he takes something from that description of himself and it applies it to each different church. In this case, he talks about the sword that was coming out of the Lord Jesus' mouth. Um, and by the way, this is not the Hebrews, what is it, Hebrews 4.12? The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Right? It's powerful, um, living and powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. That word for sword is like a little dagger, like, like for hand-to-hand -hand fighting. This sword here is a giant, it's called a Thracian sword. It's huge, and with one blow, it just takes someone out. It's just, you're done, you're toast. And we see this sword word used again in relation 
in relation to Jesus' second coming, Revelation chapter 19, it's used twice there and refers to judgment that is coming. And so Jesus has a sword, we find out, and you don't want to be on the receiving end of that type of judgment, do you? No, you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. And so Jesus begins with, notice what he says here, after he identifies himself, he says, I know your works. And he begins with a commendation, what pleases him. And and just him saying, I know, do do you know that Jesus knows everything? He knows everything going on in your life. He knows everything going on in my life. And I think it's good to be reminded that he cares. Nothing slips past him. No matter what you're going through now, no matter how difficult, no matter how gnarly, maybe you're going through a storm or a trial, the Lord knows. He is our ever-present help in time of trouble. He is with you. He promises to never leave you nor forsake you. We can trust him fully and completely with our lives. And so he says to this church, I know your works. I know that you are, that you're working hard for me. I know that you're laboring, that you're involved in ministry, that you're serving. I know what you are doing. And he also says something else there. It's interesting to me. He says, not only do I know your works, I know where you live. And that's really either comforting or really convicting, isn't it? I know where you live. I know where you live. And notice, though, what it says, where Satan's throne is. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? The devil's headquarters at that time were in Pergamos. And some people think the devil's headquarters are in hell, and he's down there making his plans and and doing this and that. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some people think that. But apparently he has headquarters here on planet Earth, and he can only be in one place at one time. Please, I think it's so important to be reminded of this, is that the devil is not God's equal. Are you with me this morning? The Lord God is our creator. Satan is a created being, a fallen created being. He can only be at one place at one time. His powers are limited. He has to get, he has to get um, the okay from God before getting involved in our lives. We see, we see that in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. In fact, remember when Jesus said to Peter, Satan, uh, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat. He needed to get permission before sifting Peter as wheat. So it's important to understand that. And so, but if you mess around with darkness, if you're involved with evil, listen, the devil ro- goes around, roams around like a proud, like a roaring lion looking to devour you. The enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We have a very real enemy. That's why it's so important to stay close to Jesus. Stay close to him. Stick with him. Abide in him. And so in any event, Jesus says, I know where you live. And it's, it's hard. That would be a hard place to live, wouldn't it? where Satan's headquarters are. And he says, notice what he commends them for. Look what it says with me. You hold fast to my name. What does it mean to hold fast? What does it mean to hold fast, y'all? To cling to. Yeah. Our Labrador, Brody, when he was little, we get this thick rope and he would chew on it and you could shake his head. You couldn't get it away from him. You guys ever do that with your dog? You can lift him off the ground and he's still on there and... You guys ever do that? It's pretty fun. It's cool, right? That's what hold fast means. You're cling. You got a death grip. And so Jesus commends him. You have a death grip on me. 
His name means all that he is, his character, his nature. This morning, do you have a death grip on Jesus? Are you holding fast to him? Are you clinging to him? Again, that is the safest place to be. When we get away from, when we drift away from him, that's where danger happens. That's where we get in trouble is when we drift away from the Lord, rather staying as close as, to get as close as I possibly can get to Jesus, to be near him. And so they held tight to Jesus. He said, you identify with me, you bear my name, you cling to me. And then second, he commends them. What does he say? Look what it says to me. You did not deny my faith. You continue to trust me. You refused to depart from me. In fact, the Bible tells us the just shall live by the just shall live by faith. They continue to trust in the Lord. Even in the heavy place they were living with heavy stuff going on, they were continuing to trust him. And I would say not only trusting in Jesus, but also trusting in his word, also the faith. Right? He says, "My faith You did not deny my faith. I think they also embraced the tenets of the faith. You know what I'm talking about? The tenets of the faith, the virgin birth, right? The inerrancy of scripture, those things that are non-negotiables, should be non-negotiables for us as Christians. They were holding fast to the faith. And so they they had a remarkable faith. In fact, look at the end of this verse. It says, you did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful was my faithful martyr was killed among you where Satan dwells. Did you hear what Jesus is saying here to them? You continued to cling to me, to hold on to me, to trust me, even with the imminent danger of martyrdom. Even in the face, and you stood strong in the face of death. That's awesome. And one of the members of the church, maybe Antipas, it could have been the pastor of the church. He was martyred. In fact, it says Antipas, Jesus called him my faithful martyr. And that word martyr in the Greek, we get the word witness, martyrus. And we're all called to be witnesses, aren't we? We're all called to be martyrs. And maybe some of us may not lay down our lives um, in the face of persecution or in the face of someone that wants to take us out. But we're to lay down our lives every day, aren't we? As his witnesses. Jesus called us to be his witnesses. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you're taking notes, Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, my martyrs. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth to be a witness for Jesus, to go on record, to testify that he is risen, that he is alive, that he does have the power to change a life, not only to forgive a life, but to change a life radically and completely. And it's interesting, this dude Antipas, his name means against all. Against all. That's really the only thing we know about him is that he stood against all. No compromise in his life. He stood against the sway of this wicked world. He stood against that. And we do that, don't we? The, the world's going this direction. We're swimming upstream against the world, the world's values and morals and, and all of that, the world's wisdom, following the Lord, going his direction. And so he was a faithful witness even in death. Antipas said, I will trust the Lord Jesus. I trust his word no matter what comes my way. I will give my life. I know it. 
I will die for it. I will die for him. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, if you're taking notes, 2 Timothy 1.12, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Are you persuaded this morning of the Lord's keeping power? Have you entrusted your entire life into his hands? Notice something else at the end of that verse we're told. So not only was Pergamus Satan's headquarters, but also his residence, his dwelling place. And I think there's simple application in this for us this morning. Listen, you can live in a dark, difficult place. You can live with opposition in your face. I'm not trying to rhyme this. Just <laughs> you can live in a dark, difficult place, opposition in your face, and still live for Jesus Christ. To still shine for him. To still be a witness for him. That's no excuse not to live for the Lord. And so, they're shining for him. They're loyal to him. But then things change, don't they, in the next verse? Jesus, our great physician, gives the diagnosis or the prognosis. And he says, but I have a few things against you. You know what that means? Forget everything I just said previously. <laughs> But in spite of all that, the Lord says, I see some things that are displeasing to me. Some things that are just not going to work in the church and in your life. And he says, look what he says, because, that's a reason word, you have there, there some within the church, a certain number, those who hold... Same word, hold fast, right? Cling to, death grip. You have some who have a death grip on the, doc, the doctrine of who? The doctrine of who? Balaam. Balaam. What does doctrine mean, by the way? Teaching. You've got some in the church that are clinging to, holding fast to, death grip on the doctrine or the teaching of Balaam. Y'all remember Balaam? He, that infamous dude from the Old Testament, right? He's mentioned three times in the New Testament, never in a good light. He was a prophet, we know that. And Jesus, if you don't know anything, so you're here this morning going, I have no idea who Balaam is, Balak, whatever, I can't even pronounce their names. We, the, the text tells us what was wrong. Did, did you see that with me? Look what it says. Jesus gives us a little insight into Balaam's diabolical career. He did some teaching. He did some instruction. He instructed, so Balaam instructed this dude Balak, who was a king, by the way, how to cause people to stumble, to be tripped up, to take out the children of Israel while they were trying to enter into the promised land. What were the two things that Balaam taught Balak? Look what it says. How to do what? How to introduce to the children of Israel the false gods of the Moabites and the worship of their false gods. And their worship involved having sex outside of the marriage bed as prescribed by God in his word. You guys know what I'm talking about? The marriage bed as prescribed by God in his word? That's about 40% of the room. Okay. <laughs> marriage between one genetic male husband and one genetic female wife for life. Any sexual 
intimacy relations outside of that is sin, it's wrong, whether it's premarital sex, adultery, homosexual sex, whatever. I don't know how many pulpits this is coming from this morning, but it's going to come from ours because that's what it says. That's what sexual immorality is. And it's wrong. But there are some in the church holding on to this doctrine that it's okay. It's okay to be involved to be living with your girlfriend, to be involved with that member of the opposite sex. And Jesus is saying, this is displeasing to me. This is displeasing. Let's, let's do this. Let's go back just for a moment to Balaam and Balak. The story of Balaam real quick. You guys, may, when you hear Balaam, what do you think of? Donkey! I heard a bad word from the back. That's okay. You're forgiven. It may say that in the King Jimmy. <laughs> Is that what it says in the King Jimmy? Rhymes with grass. (laughs) Book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right? Numbers 22, all the way to 25. If you're taking notes, don't flip there, right? If you can, if you want. And chapter 31. But let me just give you like a little brief kind of summary of what happened. The children of Israel, remember they got delivered from Egypt. God miraculously delivered his people, the children of Israel. He was going to bring them into the promised land. Uh, Forty years they wandered. God took care of them. Unbelief kept them from entering in. And so they're traveling now in the story. They're traveling northbound on the east side of the Jordan River. And they're across from Jericho. If you have a Bible map, you can check it out. While en route, they are just, they're just, um, they're just attacking and wiping out the people groups that are coming after them. Og of Bashan, the Amorites. They are just like doing a number on all these different tribal groups. And all of a sudden, Balak... He's the king of Moab. He hears about this. He sees all that's going on, the children of Israel winning all these battles. He's like, we're next on the menu. We're toast, man. We're done. So what does he do? He sends some of his guys to this Balaam cat. And Balaam was a prophet. Tells us in the New Testament he was a prophet, quasi-prophet. He did have a relationship with God. It's interesting. You go back and look at his life. I was weird, but he had a relationship with God. He had gifts given to him by God. And so this delegation goes to Balaam and says, King Balak wants to hire you to curse the children of Israel because everybody you curse, they get cursed. And he offered, and he offered Balaam money, and I, I had never seen this before, and honor. Isn't that interesting? You'll be highly honored. You'll have a reputation. You'll have a name. And you'll be wealthy. You come. And what did Balaam do? He walked through every stop sign that God put up. You guys know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we walk through God's stop signs that he puts up in our lives. And Balaam walked through each and every one of them. He should have never gone. Should have never gone. But he does. And then he had that dialogue with the donkey. Y'all remember that? Only guy to ever dialogue. Not just the donkey talked. He had a conversation with him. Finally gets there. Balak takes him up on a high place, shows him the children of Israel, and wants him to curse the children of Israel four times. Four times he was going to curse, and every time came blessing. Awesome. God would not allow that to happen because God protects his children. Do you know that this morning? 
So don't let anybody say to you, oh, someone just cast a spell on you. You better look out. No, 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 no. I'm under the Lord's protection. So what happens? So King Balak is tweaked. He is like torqued off. He's like, dude, you didn't do it. You didn't curse them. You're a bozo. I'm not giving you honor. I'm not paying you. Get out of here. And what does Balaam do? He hops on his little donkey and he takes off. And so he's cruising back to Mesopotamia. And all of a sudden he goes, man, I wanted that honor. Isn't that our flesh? We want to be recognized by men, don't we? Men pleasers. The praises of men. I want that money. So what does he do? He goes back and he says, listen, you can't curse them. God is protecting them. Here's what you need to do. He's instructing. He's teaching him. He says, you gather up all your pretty women, all the Moabite women, you send them over to the camp of Israel, and you have them connect with the young men. And you take them out of the camp, you introduce them to your worship, introduce them to your gods, and guess what? You got them, because now you take them out from underneath God's protection. Do you know within the marriage bed there's protection, by the way? Outside of the marriage bed, no protection. You know what I'm talking about? STDs, AIDS, broken hearts, broken lives, giving away yourself. There's protection in the word of God. There's protection being under the Lord's hand. But he knew I can take him out from under the Lord's protection. And that's what happened. God brought judgment on the children of Israel. And so now we fast forward. Think about Balaam. What did he do? He used his gifts. He, let me put it this way, prostituted his gifts. He took what God gave him and used it for what? For material gain in his own life and for the praise and the honor of men. And you know what's interesting to me? Jesus talks about the sword here. He's got a sword. Balaam died by the sword. I had never seen that before again until studying. Balaam got taken out with the sword. Judgment came upon Balaam. And so idolatry and sexual immorality or fornication is sin. It is displeasing to Jesus. And in the church here, there was some teaching and holding on to this doctrine, giving approval, giving their approval of idolatry and immorality. And you know that happens today too? You know what happens within the church today too? It's, there's nothing new under the sun. Remember in the book of Jude? When Jude was writing, he wanted to write to them about their salvation, all the cool things about salvation. But he said, er, I got to stop. There's a problem going on. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you guys catch that? They turn the grace of our God into lewdness. You know what that means? They take God's grace and use it as a license for sin. Oh, you're saved by the blood, but you can go wallow in the live in the mud and do anything you want with your life. You can get involved. You can, hey, you're, you're saved. You're chosen. You're elected. Now go live any way you want. That's in total contradiction to the scriptures. Are you guys with me this morning? I'm seeing some blank stares, man. Some of, I know some of you who come out of churches like that. 
Well, that's grace. Listen, grace is to be teaching us something, isn't it? Isn't that what the book says? Isn't grace to be teaching us something? For the grace of God, this is Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You guys catch that? What grace is to be doing in our lives. And so... Jesus said, you're allowing this influence. You're promoting this type of teaching that it's okay to compromise, but it's not. These sins are being embraced and justified. Again, God's word does not condone sexual immorality. It's condemned. But let me remind us, one sin is not worse than any other. It's all sin. Sin ruins lives, and God sent his son to rescue us from sin. And so Pergamus, the culture, was involved with immorality and idolatry. It had begun to creep into the church. They lowered their standards of holiness. They were flirting with the world. They got involved with idolatry, connected with the idols. And by the way, idolatry is, is what you live for. If you're not living for Jesus, it's what you live for. What you wake up that you give your life to, what you serve. And Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and mammon or, or material or money or anything else. In fact, it says, God said in the Ten Commandments, you are to worship the Lord your God alone. You shall have no other gods before him. And when he says that, no other, in Hebrew, no other gods before me, God is saying, me and that's it, not me and a list of your gods. Oh, I got my job, my money, my family, my sport, or whatever, God says, me and me alone. I want you. I've purchased you with my blood. I've given my life for you. I've brought you out of Egypt, so to speak, and brought you into the promised land. Those idols didn't. Those things can't save you. Those things can't rescue you. Those things can't deliver you. I'm the one who's delivered you and set you free and given you a fresh start and a second chance. And so... Jesus addresses this, and then he says something else. Look at verse 15. I know that's heavy, but it's necessary heavy, isn't it, this morning? Is that nece- it's necessary, isn't it? Because compromise affects the whole body. Like leaven, it spreads. Jesus says, on top of those who are promoting idolatry and immorality... You also have those who, hold, there's our word hold again, cling to a death grip on this type of teaching, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Remember, we talked about the Nicolaitans, didn't we, a few weeks ago? Nicolaitans, combination, that word, the entomology, how you break it down. Nico means to conquer. Laetan means people. What does that mean? You had people in the church conquering, the leaders conquering or lording it over the people. There was a higher, a spiritual hierarchy in the church where the people in the church were forced to go to the leaders if they needed to make a decision. They needed, and some of you come, have come from churches like that, where the leadership lords it over the congregation. And by the way, that doesn't happen here. We are called to serve the congregation, to be helpers of your joy. And if, that, if you're in a church that's like that, bail, man, take off. Because Jesus hates that right? 
those who are spiritual dictators who misuse the Bible to control and manipulate people. They set themselves up as the one and only authority within the church, and you need to go to them when making decisions. You know what I'm talking about? I've talked to people in the church about it. Like, it's weird. Like, you have to go to them, should I get a GE or a Manna? Or should I go to McDonald's or Burger King? Isn't that weird? And people come to me sometimes and say, Pastor, what should I do? And you know what I'll tell you? I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out myself. I'm trying to tune in and hear the Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I'm trying my best to hear his voice and follow him. Now, if it's something straight out of the word, I'll point you right to what it says. You guys know that. It's like... But I'm trying to figure it out too. We're all, aren't we all trying to figure it out with the Lord? And the Lord is so good because when you're, when you're wanting to please him and honor him, even if, you're, even if your decision is a little bit jacked up, he's working all things together for good. Taking rest. It's like, okay, you know, I wanted my kids to go to USC, my alma mater, but they went here. The Lord will work it out. It's cool. <laughs> Just a lame illustration. Sorry. But so... Why does Jesus hate this? Why does Jesus hate this so much? Because you're putting someone between you and him. Or something between you and him. He doesn't want anyone between you and him. Do you know that this morning? Jesus died on the cross so that you and I can come directly to him to walk with him every day, to talk with him every day. He paid the price so you could have a relationship with him, not so that you have to go through some priest or pastor or some mediator. You go straight to the Lord. That's good. Isn't that good news this morning? Do you want someone to come between you and your wife, dudes? That's about half the room. Come on, really? We're gonna... Do you want someone to come between you and your babe? I don't. That's... Look out, man. Time to throw down. You know what I'm saying? Do you want someone to come? Okay, let's, let's bring it a little closer to home even more. You want someone to come between you and your kids? I don't want someone coming between me and my kids. I'm the one that gets to wrestle with them and kiss them and look into their little faces and tell them I love them. Not some other cat. That's dad's job. You know, it says that our God is a jealous God. Some people have a problem with that. You know what that means? He wants us all to himself. I want Tanya all to myself. I want my kids all to myself. No one interfering. I mean, you guys can have friendship with them. I mean, that's cool, but they're mine. And so the Lord is saying, the Lord is saying to the church, listen, you, you're sharing the best part of you with something or someone else. If you're involved in sexual immorality or idolatry, the Lord is saying you're sharing the best part of you with something else or someone else. If you're lording it over people, that can even happen in our homes. You guys know that? As dads or parents, we can lord it over our kids in a bad way. And we should be serving. Does Jesus lord it over us? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's our example. He's the best parent. 
with us, isn't he, with, with his kids, as his children? But the Lord's saying here, you're sharing the best part of you with someone or something else. And look at the, what's the cure? What does it say? What should, what should we do? Aren't, isn't it great he gives the diagnosis and then he gives the cure? Aren't you glad he doesn't say, I'm just done with you? Aren't you glad he doesn't fire you? Anybody glad about that? Look what it says, the cure, what is it? Repent. Change of mind, change of heart, change of direction. Jesus is calling them to repentance. Maybe this morning he's calling you to repentance. Maybe you've been allowing this type of doctrine, this type of teaching in your life. Maybe you've been allowing a little bit. Maybe you've introduced something back into your life. And you need to repent this morning. It will ruin you. It'll hurt you. Listen, repentance is not just a one-time deal. It is a lifestyle. When we should always be turning in his direction, going to go his way, when he shows us something is wrong. And doesn't that happen when you open your Bible? Does that happen when you open your Bible? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the greatest of them all? Not you, buckaroo, right? It's like... We need this, don't we? Don't we need the Lord to look like... Because we can fake it with people. We can't fake it with the Lord. You know what I'm talking about? You can hide stuff, keep stuff, but the Lord, He sees, He knows. All things are, are naked and open before the one to whom we must give an account. And so what a better time, better place right here if you've been dabbling, doing some of these things that we're reading about, it's like, man, repent this morning. Let him refresh you and, 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 and charge up your heart again in the right direction. In fact, because you don't want the rest of the verse. Look what it says. Or else, you don't ever want to say it, <laughs> right? Or else, I will come quickly. Jesus will show up suddenly, unexpectedly. And he will do what? He will fight against them with the sword of his mouth. He will bring heavy and necessary judgment against those in the church who are holding on to those things that displease him. You know, it's interesting because Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, do what? Pluck it up. Arm, chop, get, chop it, get rid of it. You ever wonder about that? Because a lot of us would have to be like pirates in here, wouldn't we? <laughs> But there's things you need to cut out of your life and I need to cut out of my life that aren't... The Bible says, let us lay aside every weight and sin that would slow us down. Things that need to go this morning, you cut them out. Don't let the sword come and get you. And I think it's interesting, notice the pronouns in verse 14, 15, and then here in 16. He says uh, in verse 14, um, because you have there those... Verse 15, thus you also have those, and then there in verse 16, I will, come, I will come to you quickly and fight against them. You guys see that? Not everyone in the church was engaged in idolatry or immorality or lording it over God's people, but there were a certain number. Is that correct? You guys see that? He says them and those, but Jesus held the church accountable to deal with this issue. Do you know this morning it's not up to just the pastoral staff to deal with these issues? 
When there's false teaching being introduced to the church or people promoting that or bringing that influence into the church, that's not just my responsibility or the pastoral staff. That's your responsibility too to deal with that. In love and in truth, to share the truth in love. You guys know your Bibles. You have discernment. You've been applying the word of God in your lives. And it's like lovingly come alongside those people and show them what it says in God's word. Say, let's pray. This thing's going to damage you. This thing's going to wipe you out, man. It's displeasing to the Lord. You're putting yourself on the wrong side of God. Is that, you guys see that with me this morning? So some were doing this stuff. The rest were not correcting them, not stopping them. They were allowing this leaven to permeate. Maybe some were sharing the truth in love, but it fell on deaf ears. Listen, this morning, if you are so dug in, you're so dug in, ready to defend your bad doctrine and your bad behavior, unwilling to repent, um, then you're picking a fight with Jesus. And you're in opposition to him. And you're going to win that fight? You're not going to win that fight. Jesus calls us to repentance. And notice how many times as we finish up here, look at how many times it says doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. You guys see that, doctrine? When you hear doctrine, how does that make you feel? Oh, doctrine. Talk about doctrine this morning. You know, the Bible talks a lot about doctrine, having sound doctrine. Listen, right doctrine is absolutely crucial because right doctrine leads to right living. Wrong belief leads to wrong behavior. Bad doctrine leads to bad behavior because what you believe eventually will determine how you behave. You know what I'm saying? And we practice what we believe and the rest we pay lip service to. Are you with me this morning? And at Pergamos, they were teaching it doesn't matter how you behave as Christians and Jesus opposes that. And you know what happens is churches that are tolerant of sin and accept false teaching, they are embraced by the world. You know that? They're embraced by the world, and, but they're powerless. There's no power in those churches. Those that are intolerant of sin and reject false teaching, you know what you're called? Narrow-minded, bigoted, and judgmental. Correct? You get, there's some laughing. I know exactly you know what I'm talking about. And you're rejected by, you're not embraced by the world, you're rejected by the world. But I tell you what, I would rather be in the minority with Jesus than the majority without him. To hold fast to him and to his name and to walk in the truth of his word. Well, look at how it ends. One more verse. We got time? Oh, we got like an hour. Sweet. (laughs) He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says or is saying literally because the Holy Spirit's still speaking to the churches plural each person who hears this take it to heart not just listen though to what the Holy Spirit is saying but take it to heart and, and, and do what he says immediately make adjustments this morning if necessary and then Jesus gives promises to the overcomer isn't this beautiful those who overcome these deficiencies what does the Lord give Number one, he gives some of the hidden manna 
to eat. Jesus will share with you some of that special angel's food cake. You guys remember that manna? You guys remember the manna? God nourished his children during the wilderness. You guys remember that? What is it? That's what, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? They didn't know what it is. Psalm, Psalm 78, 24 says it is the bread of heaven. Had everything they needed for nutrition, non-GMO, uh, the, whole bit, the whole bit. You know what I'm talking about? All, all the carbs, all the protein you need packed in that. What is it? And they began to eat it and eat it. And remember what they did? Our kids do that, don't they? Again? We're having this again? <laughs> Can't we just go back to Egypt? With the, the leeks and the garlic and the beatings with the whip? Like revisionist history, right? That's what happens. It's just this man, just manna in the morning, manna at the noontime, manna when the sun goes down, manna bread, manna cotty. That's all we have is manna. But really, wasn't it? A, it was a divine demonstration of God's care. Has God taken care of you? He takes care of his own. He takes care of his children. Later, some of that manna was kept in a gold pot in the ark, right? But Jesus is the true bread of heaven. Jesus is the true, John 6, the true bread of heaven. And listen, this morning, I mean, it's heavy, it's heavy, it's necessary heavy. When you leave what's wrong and pursue what is right, God gives you something infinitely better. When you leave those things that are wrong and pursue those things that are right, God will give you what is infinitely better. Jesus will satisfy you. But wait, he's going to give us a rock too. Look at this. Or stone. And I will give him a white stone. What does that mean? A white stone? In ancient times, a couple different applications. You ready for this real quick? Can we do it? I'll get you to Costco. You get your free treats in a little while. Just hang on. Hang tight. We're getting there. White stone. In a court of law, you get a white stone, you're acquitted, not guilty. Black stone, you're guilty. You ever heard the term blackballed? If you surf in Southern California, the blackball meant no surfing for you, buckaroo. It also, if you had a white stone, you would have full access to an arena backstage pass for the Olympic Games. It was given as an invitation to banquets, to special events. I mean, think about that. Isn't that beautiful? Aren't we totally acquitted? Because we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Complete acquittal. God sees you and I as white, robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have full access, even now, don't we, to come boldly before the throne of grace because of our Lord shed blood for us. And then one day that's going to be a reality to be with him in heaven when we pass through the veil into eternity. We're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage feast, receiving his gifts of grace for all eternity. But notice something about this stone. It's got something on What's it have on there? 
You're going to get a new name. You, by the way, you will like your new name. It, it wouldn't be heaven if you didn't like your name for all eternity. <laughs> like you got like, Bo Cephas, what is this? Or, or Jimmy Don. I'm Sorry, there's a Jimmy Don here. <laughs> but why? Why a new name? What's the deal with that? A name just between you and him. Well, think about this with me. Husbands and wives, don't you have pet names? Honey bunny, right? You have a special pet name. No one, does anyone, hopefully no one else knows. Right? Sweetie pie, right? Do we have maybe something different? I don't, you don't tell me. I don't need to know. I, I do for my babe. I do for my kids too. They all have pet names. Like, I'll tell you Luke's. Luke, my special needs son, cerebral palsy. He's so tough. I call him lug nuts. Just for pet name. And sometimes we give pet names to those that we love and those that we are intimate with. The Lord's going to give you a name between you and him. That's beautiful. Special name because he loves you. Because you belong to him. In Jesus' name. Lord, thank you so much.